Okay, let's take it. Well, I was this morning <coughs> turn to Matthew chapter 13. <coughs> Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, let's just read verse 47. It says again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you, Lord, for... Uh, the opportunity this morning to come together around your word. I pray, Lord, that this morning you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us, you would instruct us as only you can. Lord, I pray that you would uh, empower me now through the Spirit, that you'd strengthen my voice and just strengthen me to preach this morning. And I pray, Lord, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, it would be your understanding, and that, Lord, you would Uh, Be honoured and glorified now in all that we do. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, most recently, in our study of uh, the Lord's parables, we've been considering some of the kingdom of heaven parables here in Matthew chapter 13. Um, We began by looking at the pair of parables in verse 31 to 33. Let's just read those verses. It says, another parable, verse 31, now the parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree. So the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And so we began by looking at this pair of parables here, verses 31 to 33. Uh, first of all, Christ likens the kingdom here to a mustard seed uh, that grows into this uh, great tree. And we talked about how it, it pictures the kingdom of heaven, heaven having a very small beginning, and yet this great exponential growth throughout the world until Christ comes again. And then in verse 33, Christ likens it unto leaven and We talked about how this pictures the permeating power of the gospel message, how it permeates mankind and it changes the world. It changes man. And then if you remember last time we were looking at verses 44 to 46, where we saw yet another pair of parables. In verse 44, it says again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we considered this pair of parables here in these verses, and we saw that, you know, first of all, the kingdom is compared to a treasure here, to all who find it. You know, a treasure that's so valuable that those who find it are now willing to sacrifice all for this treasure. And then as we saw last week, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man. We talked about how Christ is the heavenly merchant and we are the pearl of great price that he has given everything to purchase. We are of immense value to him. So valuable 
that he gave his own life. He shed his own blood to purchase our redemption. And so Christ has likened the kingdom to quite a few different things, hasn't he? He's likened it to a mustard seed, to leaven, to a treasure, and to a merchant. And now this morning we see Christ liken the kingdom to a net. And so again, he's changing the picture and he's given us another aspect of the kingdom of heaven. As we'll see this morning, this little parable here speaks of judgment. It speaks of the judgment that must come at the end of this kingdom age. And so in considering the parable this morning, let's begin by looking at the image of the parable. The image of the parable. Verse 47 again. It says again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So here we have the image that Christ is painting for us with this parable. Verse 47 begins with the words, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea. And so Christ is here giving us the, the picture, the image, if you like, of some men out fishing upon you know, perhaps the Sea of Galilee. And they're casting out their nets and they're bringing in the catch and sorting through it. But to fully understand the image here, we need to understand, first of all, the type of net that Christ is describing for us here. You see, there are three different Greek words translated nets in Matthew's gospel. And each one describes a slightly different net. It means a slightly different thing. Two of those Greek words are found closely together in Matthew chapter 4. Let's just turn over there. <coughs> Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. It says, And Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other two, sorry, other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So here in Matthew chapter 4, we have two of these Greek words used in close proximity. And it's talking about here the fact, you know, when Christ first called uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John to be his disciples. And in verse 18, we're told that when Christ first sees Peter and Andrew, he sees them casting a net into the sea. Okay, verse 18, and Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishers. Now, the word translated net here is the Greek word amphiblestron. It's made up of two Greek words, so it's a compound word. The word amphi, which means around, and then balo, which means to throw. Okay? And so in other words, this is a casting net. Okay? This is a net that you would see an individual have over their shoulder, and they would cast it out, and as they throw it, it expands into a circle, okay? and it lands in the ocean, traps everything underneath. 
Okay? And so it's these smaller casting nets that Peter and Andrew are using here when Christ first sees them and calls them to follow him. And then in verses 20 and 21, we see a different Greek word used. Okay, verse 20 there it says, And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And then verse 21, And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, uh, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And so this is a, a, a different Greek word. This word here, nets, um, is the word dikchuon, and it's more comprehensive. It's more general. Okay? It sort of includes all kinds of nets. It can even describe a net that's used for hunting or catching birds. So it doesn't even mean just a fishing net. It's just a general term that means a net of any kind. And you know, it's, it's easy to understand why that word's used here because it says they left their nets, plural, of every kind and followed the Lord. They left all their nets behind. And so those are the two words used there in Matthew chapter 4. And then in Matthew chapter eight, um, 13, where we are this morning, we see this final word net used. And it's the Greek word segeni. And it's only found here in our passage this morning. This is the only time we see this particular Greek word used in the New Testament. And it describes a net very different from the casting net of Matthew chapter 4. Okay? That was a very small net that an individual would throw out. Whereas this net described by this Greek word here in verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net. This word here describes a large dragnet. A large dragnet that would be used by commercial fishing boats. Uh, Butler writes this, he says, The net spoken of in our text was used for catching large and edible fish. It was usually a large net with sinkers on the bottom and floats on the top that was cast into the water and then pulled from both ends through the water to catch fish. When the dragging of the net was finished, the ends were drawn together to preserve the catch and then the net was drawn to the shore where the catch was sorted. And so that's the, the net that Christ is talking about here, this large drag net with weights on the bottom, floats on the top that's set by the, the boats out in the ocean and they would drag the two ends together. Okay? It would drag along the bottom. Basically, this net caught everything in its path. Okay? That's why at the end of verse 47 there, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. The idea is catching everything in its path. It's indiscriminate. Okay? Everything in its path is caught. And so the, fish, uh, the fishermen then had to bring it to shore and they had to sort through the net. Sort through the catch, okay, verse 48, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. And so here we see the fishermen now in Christ's little story here, sitting on the shore and they're going through the catch in their dragnet. Okay, they're sorting it into good and bad. You know, that which is good is that which is worth keeping. You know, so they put it into vessels ready to go to market. You know, these are the fish that are edible. Okay? They're of the right size, the right species, you know, etc. And so they keep these. They're ready for markets. But then we're told the bad, they cast away. The bad, of course, are those that are undersized or the wrong species. Maybe it's poisonous. You know, these are the ones that are discarded. They're thrown away as being worthless. 
And so this is the image that Christ is giving us here with this parable. Okay, it's this idea of this large dragnet that's been set. It's been dragged along the, uh, along the, the ocean floor, catching everything in its path, drawn together, pulled to shore, and the fishermen are now sorting through the catch of this net, sorting into that which is worth keeping and that which is worth discarding. And you know, this is an image that um, Christ's disciples would have been very familiar with, wouldn't they? You know, he's speaking to his disciples and his disciples, most of them were fishermen. And so they knew exactly what Christ was talking about. They, they, they knew the image. I mean, you can see them listening more intently here because this is a fishing story. You know, so they're listening here very intently as Christ tells them this little story. And so yet again, we see Christ using a familiar image to teach a spiritual truth. That's what he's done all the way through, isn't it? He's taken a familiar image and he's t used it to teach us spiritual truth. But the question, of course, this morning is what is that spiritual truth? What is Christ teaching us here with this image of the dragnet? So let's consider secondly this morning the explanation of the parable. The explanation of the parable. Let's read from verse 47. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, unlike some of the other kingdom parables that we've looked at, Christ actually gives us some pretty clear indication as to what this parable actually means, which we're grateful for, aren't we? We're very thankful that Christ actually gives us some indication this morning of an explanation as to what it means. But, you know, even though Christ gives us, you know, in verses 49 and 50, some indication here as to what it means, the parable is still one of those ones that people debate about. It's one of those ones that people still have a difference of interpretation on. And much of that disagreement and confusion can be cleared up if we simply keep in focus the fact that the church is not the kingdom of heaven. If we'll keep that in focus, we'll get the right understanding here. You know, when we first began looking at the kingdom parables, we defined the kingdom of heaven as being a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men. A spiritual kingdom that began with Christ on the cross and it will continue on until he comes again. Okay? And all who place their faith and trust in him are part of this spiritual kingdom. And so the church is part of the kingdom. We talked about that. The church is part of the kingdom. We are part of the kingdom of heaven. We're saved. But the church is not the kingdom. Okay? The kingdom extends past the end of the church age. And so with this understanding in mind, we can dismiss any interpretation which makes the net here to be the church. Okay? And there's many who do. So any interpretation that makes the net to be the church and the good fish to be those who are truly part of the church and the bad fish to be those who only seem to be part of the church. We can dismiss that interpretation because we've started out at the wrong place, haven't we? By saying the net represents the church. Okay? This parable, like the others before, it is not about the church primarily. 
It has application for us, but it's not about the church. That's not in view here in Matthew. Okay? The, the Jews know nothing about the church. It's all about the kingdom of heaven as a whole. And Christ makes it clear, doesn't he? He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net. It's the kingdom of heaven in view here. That's what is pictured by the net. Okay? And the two are different. Kingdom of heaven and church are not the same thing. Okay? And so the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net. The kingdom of heaven is this large dragnet okay, that we've seen in this image that represents the kingdom of heaven, that's scooping up everything in its path as it's pulled towards the shore, as it's pulled together and brought to shore. In other words, the net here represents this kingdom age. Okay? It represents the age as a whole. You know, the kingdom of heaven is an age that began when Christ died on the cross, bringing in this new spiritual kingdom, and it will continue until Christ comes again and sets up his physical kingdom here on earth. That's the kingdom of heaven age, if you like, this spiritual kingdom. The cross until Christ comes again to set up a physical kingdom here on earth. And so right now we are in this net, aren't we? Okay, we're caught in this net. We're in this net we're in the kingdom of heaven age. And this net, this age, is continuing to fill. And only when it is full will the net be pulled to shore. You know, verse 48, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good in the vessels, but cast the bad away. It says when it was full. So only when the net is full will it be pulled to shore and the judgment will begin. Now, the idea of the net being full, that speaks of the completion of time in God's divine schedule. You know, throughout the Word of God, we often read of God acting in the fullness of time. You know, for instance, we see this term used in Galatians 4 to speak about the coming of Christ. Let's go there. <coughs> Excuse me, Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> Galatians 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. It says that when, when the fullness of the time was come, it was only then that God sent forth His Son to be the Savior of mankind. In other words, Christ came in God the Father's perfect timing it was according to his divine calendar it was when everything was prepared everything was ready the fullness of time had come we see this terminology used in romans 11 as well romans 11 let's turn over there romans chapter 11 <coughs> romans chapter 11 and verse 25 <coughs> it says for i would not brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness is, in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Here we see the fullness of the Gentiles. Again, the fullness of an age points to the completion of an age in God's divine calendar, His divine schedule. Fullness of the Gentiles will happen in God's perfect timing. And then finally we see the phrase used in Ephesians chapter 1. 
Just turn there, last one. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. Ephesians 1 verse 10 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. You see, in each of these passages, we read this idea of the fullness of time. It's, it's clear that God has a divine calendar that he's acting according to. He has a plan. And only when everything that God has planned for that particular time will that age be brought to completion. Okay? Only when everything that needs to happen in that age is finished will the age come to an end. And that's the point here with the net. Only when the net, king of heaven, only when it is full, only then when God is satisfied that everything has been accomplished, will this set time, that, uh, sorry, that the kingdom of heaven age be complete. Only then will the net be drawn to shore. And in verse 49, Christ actually tells us when this will be. Uh, verse 49, it says, So shall it be at the end of the world. Here we see clearly the net will be drawn to shore when? At the end of the world. Christ tells us very clearly when the fullness of time will come, when this net will be full and the judgment will begin. It's at the end of the world. You see, the point is that there is an end coming to this age, the kingdom of heaven age. It's not going to continue on indefinitely. God has allotted a certain period of time and there are certain events that must be fulfilled in that time. And then time will be up and judgment will begin. You know, many today scoff at this idea of judgment, don't they? They scoff. They scoff at the idea that God will one day hold them accountable. They scoff at the idea that they will stand before the judgment seat of God. You know, Peter, he describes this attitude now, the attitude of many in Second Peter. Let's just turn there. Second Peter chapter three. Second <coughs> Peter chapter three, verse three, says, "Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers." walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You know, we are indeed in the last days, aren't we? The net is getting closer to the shore and the scoffers are many. You know, they question the truthfulness of God's word. They scoff at the idea that Christ is coming again. To them, as Peter says here, all things seem to continue as they always have. Things just seem to be continuing on. And so to them, there is no fear of judgment. But no matter what men may say, God's word is very clear that this age is drawing to a close. And judgment is coming. You know, later in that same chapter, Peter declares that God has not forgotten his promise and indeed, his return will be like a thief in the night. Go down to Second uh, Peter 3, verse 9. <clears throat> it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us would, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. See, God has not forgotten his word. He hasn't forgotten his promises. He's not slack concerning his promises. Christ will indeed come in the fullness of time, in God's perfect timing, when the net is full, he will come and he will come as a thief in the night. In other words, he will come when most are unexpecting him. They're not ready for him to come. The day of judgment will come suddenly and time will be up. You know, as we read on in verses 49 and 50 in Matthew chapter 13, <coughs> we see that when the net is full and that net is pulled to shore at the end of the world, the angels of the Lord will then separate the just from the unjust. Let's just read it again. Matthew 13, verse 49. So, so shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, here we have described for us the judgments that will take place at the end of the kingdom age. The kingdom of heaven age. You know, the question we must ask then, of course, is when will this take place? When is the end of the kingdom age? When is the end of the world that Christ is speaking about here? Well, for starters, it's not the same as the end of the church age. You know, the church age ends with the rapture of the church, doesn't it? Us being taken to glory. But the kingdom of heaven, this age continues past that. Okay, so it's not the same as the rapture. The end of the kingdom age and the judgment referred to here by Christ will occur at the end of that seven years of tribulation, the book of Revelation, when Christ returns to set up his physical kingdom here on earth. And we read of this event in Revelation chapter 19. Let's turn over there. <coughs> in Revelation 19. Let's begin reading from verse 11. In Revelation 19, verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth uh, the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that have received the mark of the beast, 
and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which saw proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Now, Revelation 19, we read of the Lord's return. The Lord's return with his heavenly host to what is commonly called the Battle of Armageddon. Christ will return on that day. He will defeat the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and he will cast them both into the lake of fire. And all those who follow him on that day will be slain. That's what we just read there in verse 20. It says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, and uh, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which saw proceedeth out of his mouth, and the, all the fowls were filled with their flesh. You see, this is a great day of judgment when Christ returns with his heavenly host to earth. It's a day of separation. Separation between the just and the unjust. You see, the net will be drawn to shore and the catch will be sorted. And only the just will remain to enter into the millennial kingdom. That's the judgment we're talking about here. Okay, at the end of that seven years of tribulation, Christ will come again, and only those who are just, only those who worship him, will enter into the millennial kingdom. The rest are slain as followers of the beast and the Antichrist. Pentecost writes this, The righteous will be received into the coming millennial theocracy, but the wicked will be excluded. No unsafe person will enter the Lord's millennial kingdom. See, in our passage, Christ clearly outlines for us the destiny of the unsaved, doesn't he? Go back to Matthew 13, <clears throat> verse 50. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, And he shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Christ tells us what the destiny of the wicked will be. Christ tells us that the wicked will be cast into the furnace of fire. All those alive when Christ returns who have rejected him and are in unbelief, they will be cast into hell. You know, people today don't like talking about hell, do they? People don't like to talk about it. Many churches don't even mention it. And yet Christ here makes it very clear that hell is a very real place. It's a very real place and Christ emphasizes here that it's a place of great suffering. Now we read in verse 50 there that they shall be cast into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now hell is described as a furnace of fire. It's a place of great torment, great suffering. You know the wicked will not find any joy or rest in hell. Indeed, there will only be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, these words describe the anguish. They describe the pain of those in hell. You see, the word translated wailing here means great lamentation and crying. You see, there will be no laughter. There will be no joy in hell. Nobody will be enjoying a conversation with their mates. 
Nobody would be telling jokes. It's a place of great pain and suffering where the wailing will be constant. I mean, that alone will be torture, won't it? Listening to the wailing of everybody else as well as your own. And added to that wailing is the idea of gnashing of teeth. The word translated gnashing here means to bite or to grate the teeth. It speaks of men clenching their teeth together because of the immense pain that they're suffering. Now, Butler writes, it reflects the terrible, agonizing pain the sinner experiences in hell. Sometimes we bite or grate our teeth in this life when pain is pronounced, such is the picture here. Pain will be most pronounced in hell. In fact, no greater pain will anyone experience than the fires of hell. You see, that's what these two words here are describing, the terrible pain and suffering that the wicked will experience in hell one day. It's a place of suffering for both the mind and the body. Now we see vividly described the torment of hell in Luke chapter 16, don't we? Let's turn there. We know this passage, I'm sure. Luke chapter 16. (coughs) Excuse me. Let's read from verse 19. It says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the uh, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they would not pass from hence to you, sorry, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to the, into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses... And the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You know, Luke chapter 16 vividly describes the the torment of hell. You know, we see the rich man here suffering in the flame. Suffering, calling out for a, a drop of water on his tongue. And we see his complete lack of peace, don't we? There's no peace, there's no rest, there's no joy. And we see his anguish at knowing his family is coming to join him. His anguish that they would not follow him. He's pleading with Abraham to send someone to tell them before it's too late. You know, sadly, this is what awaits all who reject Christ. This is what awaits them. But of course, hell is only the temporary 
holding place. Revelation 20 tells us that at the end of the millennial kingdom, the wicked will be resurrected to stand before God. Let's just go there. Revelation chapter 20. <coughs> Revelation 20. Let's read from verse 11. <clears throat> Revelation 20 verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 describes how the wicked will be resurrected. They will stand before God at the great white throne, judgments. And all whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. You know, in the lake of fire, the suffering of hell will be eternal. The suffering of hell will be eternal. There is no escape. It's a place of eternal torments. You see, with this parable here this morning, Christ is warning men of this terrible day of judgment that's coming at the end of the age. This day of judgment is fast approaching. The net is filling. It's been drawn together. It's been drawn towards the shore. Christ will return. And all who have rejected him will be cast into hell and ultimately into the lake of fire. Beloved, for now the net is still filling. This age is still continuing. But soon the net will be full. Time is fast running out for mankind. And therefore, beloved, we need to take every opportunity, don't we? Every opportunity to share the gospel message, the truth, the love of God for mankind before it is eternally too late. We must warn men everywhere to repent, for judgment is coming. And one day soon, it will be too late. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this parable which so vividly describes, Lord, the end of the age. This net being drawn to shore and the judgment beginning. The separation between the just and the unjust. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have a real passion for souls. Help us, Lord, to see the need of the unsaved, see uh, their eternal destiny separated from you. Work in our hearts this morning, Lord, and give us opportunities even this week to snatch some dear ones from the burning. Lord, give us a passion for souls. Work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.